Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. At Sleep Outfitters Outlet, great sleep is a big deal. Save 40 to 60% every day on every Sealy, Stearns & Foster, and Tempur-Pedic. Queens as low as $249. Customer exchanges, closeouts, and floor samples. Inventory changes daily, so come in for your dream deal today. With no credit needed financing, expert advice, and up to 60% off retail, it's never been easier to get the sleep and savings you deserve. Go to sleepoutfittersoutlet.com for financing details and to find a store near you. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Welcome back. This is part two of the podcast with Alexander Bard, former Army of Lovers, turned political activist and philosopher. Now, at the end of the last podcast, he talked about his time as a sex worker in Amsterdam. Well, the beginning of this one starts with his trans character in the band Barbie. So, well, this is the funny thing. I never sold sex as a tranny. I hope I can say tranny. I hope it's not politically incorrect to use the word today. But yeah, uh, I, I love the word, by the way. So I, Barbie was the tranny character that I co-developed with a friend of mine, John Sermon. I was a student at Stockholm School of Economics. And this was like, just have fun in the spring. Let's do something. I didn't have a recording contract yet. So I just invented the Barbie figure. And I was more suitable than him to play the figure. So the funny thing is that I did explore that by doing my only drag act was the Barbie figure. And I never sold sex as a tranny. A lot of sex workers do, but I actually went the other way. So what I explored selling sex was my much more masculine side. If anything, I, I was a drag king, but with a penis, right? So, so, um, I, 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 think, I think that makes sense as well. I think, I think when things get too private, you don't put them on the stage. What you do, though, what you can creatively do is that you can put the exact opposite of what you're exploring on the stage, and then you can do the other thing in private. Or professionally, what, uh, what you do when you do sex work is not what you do when you make love. 
Barbie, you make two I distinctly felt, different things. Yeah. I met you in that period. That's when I did the first interview, I think. And I had the feeling then that this is ahead of its time. This is something that is at, I don't know when that was. Was that sort of late 80s, 88, 89? It must have been about that era. For it was the, even before that. It was actually, uh, it's actually 85, 86. Yeah. And, and I remember and when coming, the first Army of Lovers single came out when the night is cold, I'd already changed gender and, and dressed male again. So Barbie the Barbie time yeah. in a lot of ways because of the transgender aspect and the the um, I mean I, I think uh, it was more. Oh, like- you, I mean, if you talk to RuPaul, the RuPaul's drag show, whatever it's called, it's fantastic. You would never had RuPaul unless those things had happened. Even, even Lady Gaga's admitted this was a period when the stuff that I and Camilla Tulin worked with inspired them later. So we were a cult. We were definitely cult. Barbie's prostitution twist was a cult record all over America and in Japan. I mean, the stuff we did in Sweden wasn't number one in Sweden. That was never the point. The stuff we did in Sweden was exported through these record stores and, and ended up in all kinds of weird places. And we had fans. We had fans who were obsessed with the whole weirdness and craziness of the Barbie figure. Barbie would go on television in Sweden and say that, oh, I just had, uh, I, 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 I just heard you found Russian submarines in Stockholm Archipelago. Sorry for bringing them in. You'll find 400 condoms around my house from last night, right? So Barbie would just explain that the reason why the Russians here because they would have fucked me and I want 400 of them. I'm a nymphomaniac, right? So Barbie Hitchcock, as her name was, was this drag character was just completely over the top, like the ultimate drug character you could ever think of, right? And sweet and cute while she was nasty like hell. That was the character. I played it. I enjoyed it. But I wasn't really into the putting on the lady stockings thing. And I think if I had been, I would have loved it. I would have explored it. I would have stayed with it. But I wasn't. I didn't find the transsexual in me. It's like my girlfriend says that you're really a lesbian with a built-in dildo. You know, that's so me. <laughs> if, I, if I want to change gender and go through gender, op- gender surgery, I would change my own gender even more. That's me, right? So, so I'm desperate to be more masculine than I actually am, if anything. So the personal journey was that I, I went back to La Camilla and I went back to Jean-Pierre and Camilla Tudine and I told them that, okay, you, you were great to support the Barbie character, but let's turn this into a band. I'm not comfortable being center stage. I think all of us should be center stage. And while I do it, I'm going to change back to being a guy. And then we can go really flamboyant and over the top and see what happens. That became our male lovers. So the Barbie product was how we learned to express ourselves and be uncompromising and have fun in what we did. And we were allowed to. And Barbie wasn't signed by Lockhart. He signed me uh, personally while I was doing the Barbie project. And he, he understood why I had to do it. And he thought it was funny. But of course, when I came in through the door with Army Lovers, he said, this is the big one. You just, you just trained doing Barbie. This is, this is you. This is more honest. This is, this is more what you were about. This is more what La Camilla and Jean-Pierre are about. They're now at the forefront of the whole project. You put your best friends center stage, do it, right? And that was Army Lovers. I think that's really interesting you say that because everyone I've talked to in, in who's been successful in the music industry has basically had their learning process from all areas of their life along the way. And then suddenly the bit that works is when it all combines and comes together at uh, a particular moment in time. And that was it, really, uh, for Army of Lovers. That's where it suddenly hit a nerve and suddenly you were just massive all across Europe. But tell me about Chris. Yeah, we, we, we were still actually cool experimental with the first album. So uh, we're allowed to be that. 
disco extravaganza was a, was a kind of hard-earned album. It was ahead of the avalanches that we used sampling extensively because we weren't that interested in singing or even speaking on the records like we later did. We weren't that interested in musically expressing ourselves. We were just interested in music that we loved. So we tried to sample and make music that we would love ourselves. That was the entire first album. But when the second album came along, then Ola Hawkins had told me, you kind of, if you just bend it slightly, you know, do more classic songwriting like you do for everybody else. Because I was a very successful songwriter already in Sweden, had several number one records for other artists. So he said, why don't you write something that's Army of Lovers that has the catchy tunes to it that you do for everybody else? And I said, okay. So Army of Lovers was the sort of left field experimental band that, yeah, we, our videos were played on MTV already, right? The bullet, the first video was on MTV. That's correct. We weren't number one in the charts or anything. But when the second album came along, Crucified came out and then it just exploded. So it, just, it was just like everybody was waiting for Army Lovers to have that hit record and happen. And when it came, boom, it went through the roof. Well, about, what is it about Crucified that made it such a massive hit, do you think? Have you ever sort of thought about it? Oh God, he was so gay. <laughs> it was AIDS. It was, it was like, it was like, it was, finally, finally, there was some hope on the horizon. And I remember that many of my gay friends told me that I don't even know whether I want to survive or not if they get these medications that make us survive or what quality of life could have possibly, because all their friends had died. You know, it was slaughterhouse between 1984 and 1992. The, re- the, reason, the reason why fashion is terrible these days is because all the gay guys that should do the fashion all died during those eight years. Because women can't do fashion. Only gay guys can. Women are horrible at fashion. They, they do the same fashion every year as all the gray and beige. Whereas the gay guy comes in the door and says, you're a woman, dress up, more color, higher heels, get sexy. Yes, you dare, sister. That's what gay guys do. That's why they do fashion really well. And the reason why we have this lack in our culture today why, why Broadway went into repetition mode, well, 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 the new novel stuff that should exist today doesn't exist the way it should. It's because for eight years, every damn good-looking gay guy in the West died, more or less. And the few that survived were set back for the rest of their lives because they spent eight years in, in wardens and hospitals, right? So I knew there was something about that. And, and Crucival was just this hysterical idea that, that we would play with it, take the Christ figure, put a Jew, Jean-Pierre Barda, on the cross, which is totally detrimental to Christianity's myth about itself, and then I'd be a gay Jewish guy and then let him die on the cross and said, I have to sacrifice myself, AIDS, whatever, because if I don't sacrifice myself, then you cannot live, right? And that became the crucified anthem. And But it's also it, a celebration it, in a way, isn't it? That's the that's why it yeah, it's Oh, it's it total tragic comedy. It's like it's like it can't decide whether it's totally devastated and totally sad. It is it, 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 it is absolutely this sort of it's very Russian in the sense that it's like, oh, I love being sad and horrible. <laughs> it had that feeling to it. Well, I remember when I came to Bunker, it was a huge disc on Buenos Aires in Argentina, where I used to go in the winter just to get some sun, right? And I walked into Bunker and there was a huge gay disco. And at the middle of the night, Crucified burst out, maxi single format, you know, next 50 minutes of Crucified orgy on the dance floor. And people just went, wow, they went crazy. And I'm like, this is what all the young gay guys do now when they're riding between the death sentence that AIDS was and possibly a hope for a future. And then this song comes along and it just nails it. It doesn't nail it in the obvious way because that, that would never work. It nails it precisely the sort of artistic, intricate, Way like what is this song really about? Well, it's certainly about me, 
And then they went on to the dance floor and sang along with, 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 with the lyrics, of course. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Now, just, just keeping Army of Lovers together was, we all know, a hellhole. That was just like, it, it was a nightmare. We came out of Sweden. Sweden had very little experience of internationally successful pop acts. There was just ABBA, Europe, and Roxette, or Secret Service before that. So we didn't have a management industry. We didn't have psychotherapists, and we needed it. So we were left to ourselves, basically, being awake 24 hours a day promoting our records. That, that's what happened. And we were on tour, and La Camilla broke down. And eventually led to the split between her uh, on one side, me, Jean-Pierre, and Camilla on the other side. And the only way for the band to survive, actually, at that stage was to introduce Make Out of the La Cour. And we did it when we went over to the States. But how did uh, Spain of- change you? Because that, that, you know, you say that you had all that pressure on you and everything. Yeah. Fame does have an impact on, on people. And if you're in a band... Fame has a different impact on the different people. Oh, and especially and if you don't have support. Yeah, and especially if you don't have support from anywhere. It, it wasn't that our Swedish record company weren't nice to us. They just didn't have the experience. They had no idea. How do you, how do you handle somebody who just had an international breakthrough in less than three months? Because even with the Swedish acts before, I was like ABBA and Roxette, they were prepared for years of being successful in Scandinavia before the breakthrough came. So they knew what was going to happen. We had no idea. We came from absolutely out of nowhere. And suddenly we and Dr. Alban were number one all over Europe. And the only guy we met was Dr. Alban. He had no idea what it was like either. He was just a dentist coming out of Stockholm. And suddenly was number one in, in Germany. It was so weird because, because of MTV, the breakthroughs were suddenly so quick. And we were not prepared. So I had the chaos in the band. What I decided to do, basically, I think, is that, okay, let's make one song at a time, one record at a time. Let's have some kind of apparatus that works reasonably so we can put these records out there. And I knew that if Army of Lovers would have split after the Paris fashion shows where everything broke down, I would be dead in the music industry. And I would have dragged Lacamole and Jean-Pierre with me. So the only way for me to survive in the music industry was to show some maturity and have Lacamole kicked because he was the one who didn't work and gel with the others, and then introduce a new member and go off to America. And I did not want to pick another black girl. That would have been the ultimate cynical move. We had one on the way in. But no, no, that's degrading to La Camilla. She cannot be replaced. It's better to create a legend about her. She can have her career. Off she can go. Do her own thing. She should be set free. This should be like, this should be as, as decent a divorce as it possibly could be. So let's take the blonde girl instead. And then Michaela de la Corte jumped in. And when we came to Latin America, it turned out to be a really smart move because in Latin America and Russia, where Army Lovers broke big time in 1993 and 1994, Michaela was a star. She was what they wanted. So, so it turned out that we lost a lot of the credibility, probably with MTV. Certainly Western Europe, because La Camilla was the star. We promoted her that way. The breakup with her looked like these two nasty gay guys who would ever break up with a black girl. So the drama was all over the place. But we saved Army Lovers by just going somewhere else and having another girl join the band. And the year after, Dominica joined, and then the fun returned. So I was fine after that. Pop music is in many ways temporary or it's often temporary. You know, it's like you, you, you has form a band and if it lasts four years, you're really lucky. I mean, we did some research at MTV once and I think it was uh, in the late eighties about the length, average length of a band or, you know, and it was sort of their main focus of success would be over a four year period. 
Um, when yeah, it's an advice that? I got in 1985 from Ola Håkansson. The day he signed me, he told me, just remember this one thing, Alexander, if you're this multi-talented, is that pop stars have an average age span of two years. Songwriters have an average age span of 20 years. Uh, don't jump to the stage too quickly. Rather stay in the studio and work hard there because then you got a long and prosperous career. And that was the best advice I could ever have had because I focused on the songwriting. Then I started Army of Lovers. Then I did the production part. So producer songwriter was my identity. And then having bands was just the fun way of, ex you know, exploring my own ideas in an uncompromising way. And that's why I did have four bands during my 25 years in the music industry. And I loved every one of them. And they were all totally different from one another, which exactly why I wanted to go in different directions, explore different ideas. When did you get bored with the music industry or did you? No, I, I, it, it was sad when the CD crisis came along because in 1998, everybody told you the golden age music industry was still ahead of us. I knew that was wrong. I had Napster at home. I knew they were lying to us. And I, that was just wishful thinking. And, and I started reading Marshall McLuhan and these media theorists quickly and got into their world and realized, okay, this is a paradigm shift. And the music industry is now the first industry that uh, deplores the future. And that's got to be incredibly hard. So I sort of predicted that from being the coolest industry in the world, the music industry would soon hire lawyers to chase teenagers. And lawyers chasing teenagers is the uncoolest thing that exists. It's like parents going to a rave. It's just unforgivably, you know, tragic and bad. So it won't work. And that's exactly what happened. Five years after that, by 2003, when all the CD stores were finally closing down rapidly across Europe, you knew that the music industry was not a cool place to be. It was a sad place to be. The figures were down. Profits were diminishing and, and, and disappearing. And I was out in a way. I did Alcazar at the time and wrote, wrote songs and produced records. Uh, but I lived in Berlin these years when the sort of the whole downturn came. And then finally, I did uh, Bodies Without Organs, BWO with Anders Hansson and set up the band in 2004. And it was my way of thinking, but could I still do music and think it's fun? All of the conditions for producing music are now radically different. So the smaller margins have to be more clever, product placements of the videos, whatever. Yeah, but you, you just got to do this if you want to make music. It, it's, you know, at the end of the day, you got the knife on, on, on your neck and this is what you need to do. So BWO was an experiment in that. And it worked. But it was one of the few bands in Sweden that were really, really successful in the double knots. So we had, we, had, we had BWO from 2004 to 2011. And it worked. And it produced hit single after hit single. But we were dependent on radio money and those kind of incomes because record sales were, they were bottom. They were completely at the bottom. And I think that's when the music industry started getting boring. Um, then the realization that Spotify would save the industry came to me a few years later. That was like, I, I, I worked with Spotify in 2005. By 2008, it was obvious that streaming would save the industry and it would be a money spender again. But it would be a very different industry. It wouldn't be an industry of subversive pop culture, the kind of things that you and I love. It would be an industry that basically would consist of playlists and you would serve teenagers endless amounts of songs that they wouldn't relate to other than that it was just the next track in the playlist. So... I think the music industry today is much more similar to the music industry in the 1940s when you went to a restaurant and there was an orchestra and they had a vocalist who sang and they had a conductor. And actually the orchestra was named after the conductor, not after the singer. So 
I think that's where the music industry is today. The producers have become more important. The, the songwriters that have a knack for hit songs are more important than ever. But the artists are interchangeable. It's just another face, another face, another face thrown in there because it's all playlists. I think it's impossible to create subversive pop culture today through the music industry. And that's what I wanted to do. So when I left in 2013 and the Gravitonas guys went off and were very successful without me, there you go. That's, you know, you're a good coach if you coach people to do fine without you or be even bigger without you, which they were. Love those guys. But I left in 2013 because to me, they still, they felt enormous enthusiasm going to Korea, writing hit songs for Korean boy bands. I felt nothing. I thought I've done this for 25 years. It's time for me to get out and become a full-time philosopher. I mean, that's quite a change. That's, I mean, what is a philosopher to start with? I mean, how it's can another you... art. It's another art form. I am yeah, an but artist. How can so... you just decide to become a philosopher? Oh yeah, yeah. So I, you just, I had a really great uncle who was a professor of philosophy and theology, and he was like my second dad when I grew up. And he told me when I was seven years old, find your archetype, find find your personality type, and you will discover you probably have a primary one and you have a secondary one. The primary one is the things you do with these. It just looks like magic. You just do it, right? Secondary archetype is that what you can do, especially if you get educated to do it, but it takes an effort. And actually, the music industry was my secondary archetype. Why? Because you can't be a philosopher when you're 18. And the people who tried to become philosophers when they were young and were smart enough to do it, like Heidegger and Wittgenstein, always regretted the books they broke with when they were young. They had to rewrite their entire philosophy as they got older. I don't think you can do philosophy until you're at least 40 years old. It's just impossible before them. It's that complex. So... I was perfectly happy to wait. Now, I didn't know whether I would ever become a philosopher or not. It was actually in the 1990s. It was actually during a drug trip. It was so long ago, I can talk about it. But I was taking a trip with two friends who were writers. And during the trip, they they, they almost started like a trial with me. They were just like, why do you write these pop songs for Alexander? You could be the next Hegel or Nietzsche. You have the potential to be a great thinker. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Which is awesome. It's just like, why are you wasting your time? And yeah, it was true. The songwriting part, the producing records part, the touring with artists part was the easy part in that sense, but it wasn't my primary archetype. It wasn't what I was meant to do. Rather, I realized that if I take the experience from working directly with media and then take that into the academic world, which is a very rare combination. You, you never find an academic who makes a career in media. And you never find a media person that makes an academic career. And I knew that mix 
could be a potentially really strong mix. And when Ola Hawkinson and I decided to sell Stockholm Records to Universal Music in 1998, I had fuck off money on my bank account for the first time in my life. I remember it was a Tuesday morning. I called the bank and said, you got all this money in your bank account. You could do whatever you like the rest of your life. Yeah, I got fuck off money. I could do exactly what I like. And the same week, I got a phone call from the Stockholm School of Economics. And they said, basically, we need somebody to do digital studies. The internet has arrived. We have no idea what it is. It's going to take over the world. And you're perfect for it, Alexander, because you're obviously online and you do media and you work in the music industry and you understand how hard it is to get access to people's hearts and, and you know, sell them records or whatever. And you're also a trained academic. Whoa, unique combo. We'll give you the job. And I've been there at the Stockholm School of Economics walking in out for the past 23 years. That set the stage for the first book, The Netocrats, that I co-wrote with Jan Söderqvist the year 2000. Three years later came The Global Empire. And now we have written five books and working on our sixth one together, Jan Söderqvist and I. And that became a philosophy career. So I became a philosopher. And, and I, I did philosophy and music together in sort of in the mix, like sex work and sex love, you know, mix of two things, until 2013. And then one morning, 2013, I woke up and realized, listen, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be mediocre at both things if I don't skip one of them. I really, really want to be brilliant. If I want to go back to sort of being the subversive version of Max Martin or something, which I could be possibly, I've been there before, then I have to work hard on it and skip the books. Or I write another, th- I had written three books by then. I write another three books with Jan, but this time I take myself very, very seriously. And I do my absolute utmost as a writer and a philosopher. But then I got to skip the music. And it was an easy choice because music had given me everything already. It was a finished lover. It was 25 years. I could go to the next Grammys Gala and say, thank you for everything you gave me. I hope I gave you something back. But my love affair with you is over. I'm leaving. I'm not going to write another song because I don't want to be a mediocre hobby musician. I hate that. Especially not an older, mediocre hobby musician. That's the worst thing in the world. So off I went. I think the last song I wrote with Andreas was actually the winning song in the Voice TV show in China. (laughs) It it was a mediocre song, to be honest about it. But it was the winning song of the Voice show in China. So I thought it was a perfect way to go, right? Now, when you were a teenager, you talked about, or, you know, when you were very young, talked about being with your sister in the bedroom, listening uh, to the radio, and... Essentially, I would think at that time, dreaming of being in this other world, which you achieved. Okay, so you went into... No, 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 no. I had no idea when I was a kid that I'd be a pop star. Because I wasn't a musician. I was living in... Remember, this is the 1970s. I was living in a paradigm where you play instruments and read notes and sing well if you want to make a career in the music industry. You know, the kind of things they fool people who go to these idle TV shows. Like, you got to be good at these things to, to have a career, which is bullshit, by the way. The most interesting artists ever got around those things, like Army of Lovers. Like, we didn't care if we could sing or dance or whatever. We just went to premieres and openings all the time and looked better than everybody else, and we got the biggest pictures. So everybody wanted to be us. That's all it takes to be a pop star. But I, no, I had no idea. It was only when I bought a synthesizer in 1982 in Amsterdam and started making sounds to my video art pieces. And my friends who were video artists came to me and asked me, you make such great sounds to these art pieces. Why don't you make sounds to my piece too? Why don't you become a video, video art sound engineer? And then I thought, well, why don't I then write songs, period? And those songs caught the attention of record companies and they were talented songs. 
They, there was complexity to them. They, they, they were weird and wonderful and had quirky ideas to them. This was obviously a guy who was musically talented. That's when I discovered that I could become a songwriter. Then I discovered I could be a record producer. Barbie was only meant as a joke. I never thought of myself as a pop star when I was Barbie, for God's sake. Then I would never have done Barbie. No, it was only when we started Army of Lovers that I realized I now have so many number one hit songs that I've co-written that maybe I should dare to go on the stage with my own name as a pop star. It was only in 1988 that I started exploring that idea. I had no idea when I was a kid that I would ever be this sort of guy running around on the stage being glamorous. No, not at all. I, I did theater. That was the natural connection. When I went to America when I was 17, I went to drama school. I, I was supposed to, I, and I wrote my first play and, and had it perform when I was 19 years old. My talent was definitely theater, but theater was dusty and old. And what the music industry offered was new, fresh and technology, which was a much more interesting combination. So when I got the offer in the 1980s to skip theater and do the music industry instead, that was the easy choice. I mean, earlier we talked about the attention economy to say that uh, capitalism is dead and attention is... Oh, you're not allowed to say attention economy because it's not an economy. Okay. Attention, okay. attention, attention society. Yeah. A, yeah. Economy okay. is capitalism. Whenever you talk about economy, it is capitalism you're talking about. No, attention is what we do not trade. Attention is what we will not give away to somebody for money. That's exactly what's the most valuable thing in the world now more than ever. That's what we call the attention society. Yeah. What do old people like me need to learn to be able to stay relevant in the world today? Oh, just stay curious. That's all it takes. It's just like, yeah, it, it's, um, I think of, you probably experienced the same thing. About somewhere around the age of 35, people slow down, become conservative. So if they love Bruce Springsteen when they were 35, they're going to love Bruce Springsteen when they're 75. And they're still going to think, Bruce Springsteen was the peak of civilization. Everything after he went downwards. No, you went downwards. You became older. You became boring. What happens at 35 is that the vast majority of people are so drenched in baby diapers and, and marriage problems and everything and career moves and things. So they just break down and they lose all interest in the new. They become essentially conservative, right? So... They want to concern things as they are when they're 35 and think that's universal, valid for everybody. They don't realize they're pathetic to those who are younger and they're already too boring to people who are older. So after 35, you need to make an effort. But once you get through that, say you're over 40 years old. I started BWO when I was over 40 years old. And, and the idea was very weird with this band. The, the idea was that we take Martin Lewinsky, the most good looking guy in the world, who's very, very handsome and sings fantastically. And he brings his parents with him, his band. So it takes like he takes Marina and Alexander, who are 20 years older than him, and have them play the instruments and look ultra cool on stage while he's like the average Joe. It worked. BW worked. It was also one of these weird ideas for a band that nobody had seen before. So it made sense. But when we did that, I was over 40 years old when I started the band. And my absolute incessant curiosity for songwriting and for new sounds and, and making a new record that hadn't been made before, that hadn't been heard before. I shared that passion with Andres Sanson. I shared that passion with Maria Shevchenko. We were all passing the 40 barrier and we realized other people our age are boring. We're not because we're still curious. So if you, I know people who were curious until the day they died. And, and I think that's, that's what artists should be. You should always be curious and always out looking for the new. I want to end with one thing because on Twitter, it's clear that 
um, you are loved and hated in equal measure. I mean, sometimes the hate... Is... As if my career had ever been different from that? <laughs> no, not at all. But <laughs> it's quite a shock when, when, I, when I saw your Twitter, or I, I mean, I follow you in any case, but I saw the, the, the Twitter page and sometimes you just think, my God, how do you... Is it better to be loved or hated or is it all irrelevant? It's totally irrelevant. What counts is being respected. And you don't earn respect by trying to be loved. So again, we've talked about the narcissist and the agoraphobic. The reason why we love the agoraphobics more on stage than we love the narcissists. Whitney Houston was agoraphobic. Michael Jackson was agoraphobic. Prince was agoraphobic. They were not narcissistic. They had to take drugs just to go on a stage to dare to walk up on the stage. But once they were on the stage, they could handle the mass because the mass was now in their control. So the agoraphobe is looking for is that, could I be on a stage so I can control the mass they do what I want them to do? Then I'm perfectly happy standing here and I couldn't care less what they think of me because this is all about my control of them. It's not what they think about me. So it, Whitney Houston didn't kill herself because she regretted anything with her audience and she wasn't loved enough. No, she was probably bored to death with the whole industry and being Whitney Houston day and night. So she took the drugs just to get release, agoraphobic released from all the attention she was given that she never asked for in the first place. That's the agoraphobe. So the agoraphobic character is interesting here. And I think I certainly have that, that, that trait because I'm never nervous when I walk out on the stage. Never. All the other guys are. I kind of miss that. It's just like, oh, you're nervous. you got to go out there and show them what you can do. And I'm just like, no, it's just work for me. <laughs> it's like sex work was when I was 20, then speeches when I'm 60, then performing on a stage with a band was when I was 40. It's not different at all. I just do my job and I'm proud of doing my job. But there's nothing else to it than the job itself. When you're on the stage and you're playing the keyboards and you're singing the harmonies and 60,000 people in front of you are singing along because you made the number one record that season. This is the song they all want to hear and sing along to. And you're the star of that song. You play that song and you know that next year somebody else is going to be here because I'm not going to hit it right the next season again. I'm not going to be that lucky another year. And next year, if I come back here, I have four people in the audience who are disinterested instead of the 60,000 that I have now. So am I here because the 60,000, because they love me? No, they don't love me. They love each other, hopefully. They're out with their friends and families hanging out. They might even get their date of their life and get married with somebody they meet tonight because I'm here performing to them. I'm just excused for them to be here. I'm serving them. But the reason why I'm here because I'm in a band and I'm hanging out with these three other guys in the band and they're fantastic. And our road is our handpick because our road is our fantastic. And we're going to go off and party like mad when the performance is over. That's why you go on tour. So the, 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 um, the, the, the same thing goes through with everything I've done is that this, I think the agoraphobic character is the one I put on the stage. That's, that's why I'm also perfectly happy to put other people on stage next to me who can be as glamorous as they like. I'm not in competition with anybody. If they're more glamorous than me, then I share them on too, like everybody else does. And I'm happy to do that. But I only wanted one thing out of the performance, and that was that the audience stayed in their place and didn't storm the stage or didn't walk away. And the way to do that is called respect. And the way to keep respect for years is to stay ambiguous. Don't, don't ever go easy to read. Never. 
people hate that. When they figure out what your thing is and what you're up to, and, and you don't even, when they figure out you can't surprise yourself any longer, when they figure out you're no longer curious, they get tired of you and they throw you away for very good reasons because you lose all respect. But if you stay ambiguous, it means you stay alive, you stay questioning, uh, you dare to say the politically incorrect when that should be said, you know, then, then you always stay ambiguous because it's ambiguous. People are always talking about you and you're always interesting. And then you become a phenomenon. Brilliant. Well, Alexander, stay curious. <laughs> Same to you, <laughs> Steve. Being opinionated and wonderful and interesting and what a life. So yeah, and, and let, let me cheer on that and say that I'm I'm totally for LGBT classic. That's my new term these days. I, I hate when LGBT had all these other letters added to it. It sounds like psychiatric diseases. Go back to LGBT classic, stay political. No, it, it's not. It, LGBT people don't need to add letters to stay culturally relevant. They create fucking culture. If anything, LGBT people are culture. So, so if culture is something they're born to be, they don't have to proclaim it all the time. But LGBT classic as a political struggle, you and I are both concerned how hard it is for gay guys in countries like Iran and Uganda today. That to me, that's what I'm on fire about politically. That's my real concern. And that's also why I'm pro-blacks, but I was anti-Black Lives Matter. I didn't think that organization was what Blacks needed, but that's up to Blacks to decide. So it's, it's not that hard. It's just that these days with the tweets and things, you become controversial because people decide to misread what you say. And at the end of the day, if you stay ambiguous, eventually they will have to read what you actually meant. That's it for part two and wraps up this two-part interview with Alexander Bard of Army of Lovers. Now, there are many more interviews online. Do check them out. Follow the link in the biography to find the Spotify playlists, the membership where you can help me keep doing this, and also a link to my own personal Instagram page. Right now at Safeway, earn four times rewards points when you shop for participating items with Safeway for you. Shop for items like Ready Whip Whipped Cream, Deer Park Natural Spring Water, Din and Danimals Drinks, Philadelphia Cream Cheese, and 7-Up to earn four times rewards points with Safeway for you. Offer expires January 4th. Plus, get select holiday essentials like gift wraps, bags, holiday decor, lights, and more. Buy one, get one 50% off. Restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com or head in store for full offer details. Selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... As easy as pie? Sure. All you have to do is enter your license plate or VIN. As easy as a stroll in the park. Okay. Then just answer a few questions and you'll get a real offer in seconds. As easy as singing. Why not? Schedule a pickup or drop-off and Carvana will pay you that amount right on the spot. As easy as playing guitar. Actually, I find that kind of difficult. But selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... Can be. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get an instant offer today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.